As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up on this episode of The Box of Oddities, sunken treasure at the bottom of Lake Michigan, a 150-year-old mystery solved, and the great pancake race. If it's weird, we talk about it on The Box of Oddities. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. I didn't tell you this when it happened because I was saving the story to share it with you on uh, on the podcast. Okay. Um, but you know those those lightweight mesh shorts that I have? Yes, the green, the green ones? The green ones, yeah. Um, the other night when I took haggis out, you know, I'd already gotten ready for bed mm-hmm. and I just threw those shorts on and I didn't put on any underwear. You were going commando. I was going commando. <laughs> Freeballing it, as you put it. <laughs> <laughs> and I considered whether or not that was a good decision because, you know, maybe I run into somebody, but I figure it's pretty late, it's dark out. My stuff is pretty out there. It's, let's say outlined pretty well. Is it like when you wear those gray shorts and it's obscene and you shouldn't be in public? Yeah, but but this is with mesh, lightweight mesh shorts. Right. So, yeah, I figured I'm, I'm going out. I'm taking the dog out. It's at nighttime. I'm not going to run into anybody. Mm. Everything's going to be fine. Mm-hmm. So I hook the dog up to the leash. I grab my keys and my cell phone. I put them in my pocket. I go downstairs. I go out. I take him around. I only ran into one person, which nice. was, was good. But she looked at me very strangely. Mm-hmm. And um, then when I got back and I saw my reflection in the door, mm-hmm. the um, my flashlight on my phone had turned on. <laughs> and so my stuff was perfect. It was beautifully backlit. Oh, wow. You know, it was, <laughs> it was kind of <laughs> like some sort of trouser shadow puppetry show. <laughs> like hello Orlando have you met my junk (laughs) so that was embarrassing oh yeah it's that's the way I feel like I don't know 75% of the time I go anywhere with you it is just it's like you cannot find pants that suit your shape and uh, they might look nice from the backside, yeah, but from the right. front, it yeah. looks like you should be on a list of some sort. Uh, like a, a most wanted list, perhaps? Or? Something like that. Well, I don't know about a list, but um, the struggle's real. And 
it's it's a burden that I've had to bear. I know. It's a heavy, heavy burden. <laughs> all right. All right. Enough of this. In the mid-1850s, steam-powered ships were the main means of transporting goods in the Great Lake region. Did you like that change or did was it uncomfortable for you? What do you mean? When the old ships went away and now you uh, had to ride on steam-powered okay, yeah. ships. Uh-huh. No, it was. It was a bit of an adjustment, but it was technology and I had to keep up with it. Sure. These ships... I figured we had to counteract that big, sure. big moment we y- just yeah, had. it's only fair. These ships were referred to as propellers. Okay. The big paddle steamboat type of ship. Mark Twain boat. Kind of, yes. Kind of like that. Got it. Since there were very few roads in existence at this time in that area, these propellers were a lifeline for transporting grains and meats and various supplies to settlements and outposts throughout the U.S. and and Canadian side as well. The Westmoreland was one of these ships. In fact, it was one of the very first 200-foot steam-powered propellers. It was, at the time, state-of-the-art. It was a chilly night, December 2nd, 1854, when the Westmoreland left the dock in its home port of Chicago. It was embarking on what was to be a 300-mile journey with supplies for the garrison at Mackinac Island, nearly 300 miles distance from from Chicago. Oh, Mechanic Island. Got it. (laughs) I was really proud of myself that I remembered to pronounce it Mackinac. (laughs) Our freaks in Michigan, I'm sure, will appreciate that. I appreciate you, Michigan freaks. On board of the Westmoreland were 34 crew and passengers as well as the supplies. Their journey would take them through the Manitou Passage, which is about 16 miles long. Now, this passage was thought to be, well, it was thought of as a safe harbor for ships along this route. Because leading up to the passage, um, the waters could get quite treacherous. So they wanted to get through those treacherous waters and into the safe harbor of the uh, Manitou Passage. Got it. This part of the lake was known for its unpredictable weather and sea conditions this time of year. It's still wild to me that a lake can be so large that oh, it know. has parts that can be more unpredictable than others. Well, in this particular area, the currents were very strong and unpredictable on any given day, but when the weather was unsettled, it was a sailor's worst nightmare. The Westmoreland was closing in on the passage by December the 7th. But at about 2 a.m., the crew and the passengers found themselves in uh, the middle of a terrible blizzard. The winds roared across the frigid waters of Lake Michigan at more than 30 knots coming out of the northwest. The Westmoreland found itself south of the Manitou Passage, and they were desperately trying to reach it to take shelter between North and South Manitou Islands. But the winds were so strong, it was actually pushing the ship back, even though this was a steam-powered paddler. Right. The winds continued to increase, and with it, the size of the waves. Waves began crashing over the bow, and also the sides of the ship, and that's never a good thing. Soon those on board found themselves in ankle-deep water. And this was compounded by the fact that just the night before, they had noticed a leak had developed in the ship. So now they've got a leak, They've got waves crashing over the front of the ship. And even though they had bilge pumps that were steam-powered, the storm was so strong that the bilge pumps were unable to keep up. The water level continued to rise. 
It was literally an all-hands-on-deck kind of situation. They set up a bucket brigade to help the struggling bilge pumps try to keep up, but the storm just became more and more intense. Mm. And then disaster struck. As the water level continued to rise in the ship, it soon reached the steam engine. As water poured into the engine room, it extinguished the fires, which left the Westmoreland powerless in the middle of this storm, oh. and the waves had now reached 20 feet. Oh, so scary. The waves were too big for them to ride directly into them, which is how you would try to navigate a, a storm. So it was only a matter of time since they were without power and the waves were so high before the Westmoreland would be hit broadside yeah. and swamped and sunk. Now this is two o'clock in the morning, in the middle of December, in Lake Michigan. Lifeboats were quickly lowered into the freezing water just moments before the Westmoreland took its last gasp and sank to its frigid final resting place. Fifteen people went down with the ship that night. Two more perished when the lifeboat crashed into the shoreline of the mainland the next morning. Those who survived started out on foot and walked to the nearest town, which was 40 miles away. Oh my gosh. In all, 17 people survived the wreck of the Westmoreland. 17 died. Now, when the ship went down, it not only took the 15 crew members and passengers with it, but it also took down the cargo it was carrying. And again, this was headed toward a garrison at Mackinac Island to bring supplies. Mm -hmm. There were plenty of food on board, meats, grains, and watertight barrels of flour. But it also contained barrels of whiskey and a large cache of gold coins that was meant as payroll for the soldiers at the garrison. Okay. That night, the Westmoreland became, in its truest definition, a lost treasure ship at the bottom of Lake Michigan. Immediately after the accident, a search team, well, once the survivors had made it to the nearest town, sure. a search team was sent out to try to locate the uh, wreckage or the ship or anybody else, any survivors that might have, uh, may have made it. But the only thing that was ever found were just a few of the airtight barrels of flour that had washed ashore several days after the disaster. The location of the ship was never discovered. Wow. In the days following this tragic event, newspaper articles from Chicago to Buffalo, they, this was a big story. Mm -hmm. And of course, they really keyed in on the uh, trove of gold of coins. Course, yeah. That's what everybody wants to hear about. <laughs> so over the years, numerous search parties have attempted to locate the Westmoreland and, and retrieve the gold, but it remained lost for over a century and a half. In the early 2000s, a recreational diver by the name of Ross Richardson became obsessed with finding the wreck. Now, he didn't go out and dive for it. He took a very methodical approach. He went to the library and to City Hall, and he spent a great deal of time poring over maps and nautical charts and the historical accounts of the accident, attempting to locate where the lost vessel would most likely be. Okay. It was after years of research in July of 2010 that he decided he had a pretty good bead on it. And he loaded his boat with his diving gear, as well as sonar side scan technology, and headed out to a GPS location that he thought looked more than promising. So he sets up a series of grids to search with his side scanning sonar. It didn't take long. He just got to the third grid when something appeared on his screen. Yeah. It was a massive ship, 200 feet in length. 
After 154 years at the bottom of Lake Michigan, the Westmoreland had finally been found. Ooh! You said never, so I assumed never, but you lied. Yeah, I, I lied for, I took poetic license okay. there. Um, <laughs> the original search party never found it. Got it. In an interview that, uh, that Richardson did with My North, he said, quote, I stopped the boat, shut off the engine, did some heavy-duty praying and soul-searching. I jumped into the water to cool off with my internal dialogue kicking into high gear. Is this it? Mm. I planned to bounce down, take a look, and come back up, he remembers. I bought an underwater video camera two years before on eBay for $95. <laughs> yeah, it's real primitive, he says, but it worked. And when I was about 150 feet down, I could see the bow of an enormous ship. I stopped 10 feet off the deck. There was no current. The water temperature was 39 degrees, and I had about 50 feet visibility with lots of ambient light. I could see the arches, and they were upright and in perfect shape. <gasps> I went back further to see the engine in the boiler, where they were, and I could see four lifeboat davits. The story is one of those davits hooked the lifeboat when it was launched and flipped it. 15 people died, so I stopped and spent a moment going through all I had read about the crew's efforts to save themselves. Mm. Wow, I remember thinking. The last people who saw this died 150 years ago. It gave me an eerie feeling. Of course it did. I decided to go to the stern, and I could see a big four-foot diameter ship's wheel known as the auxiliary helm. That's when I knew this was a virgin wreck because the helm is the first thing that's always taken by yeah. salvagers. Yeah. The ship is sitting upright, and the hull is only a couple of feet into the sand. Two tips of the prop blades are in the sand. Now, the law in Michigan prevents amateur divers from salvaging anything from shipwrecks unless they are authorized to do so. Mm -hmm. And especially if it's a, a historic shipwreck wreck like this, you have to call in people to map it. You know, universities need to get involved to catalog it. Right. And so, and according to the U.S. National Park Service, the federal abandoned shipwreck law in 1987 clearly states, quote, that it affirms the authority of state governments to claim and manage abandoned shipwrecks on state submerged lands. So he needed assistance, and he reported his fines to various educational institutions to help facilitate receiving permission from the National Park Service to dive the wreck. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, nobody was interested. What? If he got a response, it was lukewarm. Did no they not believe that he had found I, it? Or? I think that they just didn't believe him. Oh. And years went by and nothing happened. So he decided at this point to hold his own press conference and alert the media, yeah. finally, of what he found. He kept it as a secret, the location and everything. And that may have been one of the reasons why the universities or, or institutions did not want to get involved or didn't believe him because he wouldn't tell them where it was. Because oh, he wanted to be a part of it. Exactly. Got it. So now it's in the press. And now several different universities suddenly became interested in mapping the Westmoreland. <laughs> this was nearly 10 years after he discovered the wreck. Wow. So we're talking 2020. Oh, so this is all pretty new. Pretty recent. It wasn't until June of uh, the 24th, actually, of 2020 that the dive on the Westmoreland finally took place. Of course, the first thing they looked for was the treasure. Of course. And they found it. Was it, I mean, because it was aged, 
So it must have been really good by that point. Well, they identified several airtight barrels of whiskey still in the hold, along with the cache of gold coins. I assumed when you said the treasure, you meant the whiskey. <laughs> well, you're, you're on the right track. Of course, they could not extract the cargo at that time due to the Michigan state law. In an interview Richardson did with the Daily Mail earlier this year, in fact, like January of 2023, he said, quote, we are in the beginning stages of discussing a salvage operation to recover the whiskey casks and other artifacts. No official date has been set yet, but Richardson remains highly optimistic. He went on to say, quote, the Westmoreland is an underwater museum filled with perfectly preserved relics from the 1850s and preserving them for public display would be a worthy cause. And they asked him about the gold. And he said that if you took the amount of gold that's down there and just melt it down, mm -hmm. it'd probably be worth about a million dollars. But the true value is the numismatic value of these coins, which could realistically be about $20 million. Well, yeah, because they're really cool. And really old. But the biggest surprise discovery was, and you made a reference to it, the barrels of whiskey. Although it's not clear how much of the whiskey survived, the barrels do all appear to be airtight. If the barrels are indeed airtight, then we're talking about a bourbon that has been aging in oak casks or barrels for 170 years. Wow. Uh I was just joking about you and the whiskey and, you yeah, know, yeah. I didn't, wow, but yeah. you're right, that's, that's old. It's old. And along with it being aged for 170 years in oaken barrels, according to an article in the Mirror, the corn that was used to distill the bourbon in 1854 no longer exists. It had a different genetic makeup than today's corn. Oh my gosh. And that means the whiskey would have a very unique taste, different from today's bourbon, and impossible to make today. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. So the plus, value. Plus the history of it. Yes. I mean. We're talking before the Civil War. It was distilled. That's incredible. Let's get some. <laughs> a lot of different distilleries have put bids in. I'm sure. In case, you know, it's. It's all drinkable. According to Forbes magazine, if the whiskey is salvageable, and it appears as though there's a good chance it could be, it would be worth far more than the gold. Not just a bit, but a lot. To frame it for you, a bottle of scotch that was salvaged from the SS politician off the coast of Scotland went to auction in 2021 and sold for just under 13,000 British pounds or about 15,600 US dollars, Wow! one bottle. Inside the Westmoreland, there are 280 barrels Whoa. of whiskey. If all the bourbon in the 280 barrels of this wreck are good, that comes out to about 56,000 bottles. And if each uh bottle sold for a similar price as the scotch from the SS politician did, that would make the whiskey worth over 870 million U.S. dollars. <laughs> so I'm watching this one closely, very closely. Yeah. As a footnote, sadly, the position of the wreck, the position that it settled into was just two and a half miles south of Manitou Island. Oh. If she had stayed afloat for two and a half more miles, the Westmoreland probably would have run aground. It did not. My source information, Boat, U.S., Forbes, 
MyNorth.com, The Daily Mail, and The Mirror. Side note, I did poke about a little bit because Lake Michigan, as I said, is enormous. Yeah. And it's an inland sea. It's hard to, for my brain, uh, which is small and smooth, um, to <laughs> like picture and, and make happen in my brain what that looks like. So I just wanted to break it down for any other smooth brain people. <laughs> Lake Michigan is bigger than Croatia. It's bigger than Taiwan. It's twice as big as Rwanda and three times as big as Fiji. That is big. So ever since I wrote this story, I've had the wreck of the Edmunds Fitzgerald stuck in my head. Of course. Does anyone know where the love of God goes? That's really all I can remember. <laughs> it's a good song, though. Yeah. <laughs> I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? <sighs> Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. 
That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. And now, that thing in the middle. Bourbon is a type of barrel-aged American whiskey made primarily from corn. It's been distilled since the 18th century. Bourbon was recognized in 1964 by the U.S. Congress as a distinctive product of the United States. And although bourbon can be made anywhere in the U.S., it's strongly associated with the American South, specifically Kentucky and its county of bourbon. So what is the official drink of Kentucky? The answer, milk. Mark has sent us an email, curator at theboxofoddities.com. Hi, Kat and Jethro. Full disclosure, I was introduced to you from the uh, shallow end by Jim Harold. So he heard Jim Harold talk about shallow end. And so he went over to check out the shallow end and then learned that the shallow end is our sister podcast. I love that. He says, I work for Weedman in London, Ontario. I'm assuming that's some sort of a landscaping firm and not, you know, door-to-door pot delivery. But who knows, it's Canada. I listen to you guys while I work going door to door in the winter season asking people if they would like a free quote for our service. I cannot count the amount of times you guys have made me laugh heartily while I'm uh, out doing my job. It's perfect for my line of work because I knock on somebody's door, you make me laugh, and I have a nice big smile on my face when they open up. (laughs) I love the shallow end. I'll probably copy and paste and send an email to the lifeguard, but I love all that you guys do. Just like Kat always intended, I've been listening from the latest episode and working my way through the catalog backwards until I get to the first one. Kat's giving you a side eye. (laughs) So I'm trying to find the episode where Jethro says what you got for me in the way that is in his song so I can take that and make my own version of the jingle. I will find it. (laughs) Flying my freak flag up in Canada. Love the impersonations you guys do of Canadian accents. I will never stop listening. Thank you for the horse fuckery. Aw, geez, you're welcome. You can write to us back anytime there, you. And just so you know, whenever we do, whenever I do a Canadian um, accent, it's out of love. It I, absolutely is. Yeah. Every once in a while, we'll see like Canada or Canadians saying something in a very Canadian style on TV. I and went it, to the hoose. It just, it makes us swoon. Yeah. I just went out. And I feel homesick a little bit. Anyway, I lived in Canada for over a year. We both grew up in northern Maine, which is pretty much south New Brunswick. Yeah. Barbara sent us a message. I was listening to Box 521, and I heard the homunculus story. To say the least, I remember getting my first YouTube channel, and I went into a rabbit hole and discovered a guy trying to create a homunculus. Is that the guy The guy with the egg? I don't know. Say? Uh, yeah, I came across some weird thing. He was, yeah, anyway. She, <laughs> she writes, it was disgusting, but like a train wreck where I couldn't look away. <laughs> 10 out of 10, do not recommend. <laughs> Thanks, Barbara. <laughs> also, just a quick shout out to Jay, who alerted the mods and myself of the Freaks group on Facebook. Freaks, a box of oddities group on Facebook. Of some incredibly inappropriate material that had been added to the group. So thanks, Jay. Uh, we got that taken down. I appreciate you. Wow. W- w- was it spam? I think it was someone who was confused about what the Freaks group Freaks was about. Freaks group was about. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my. Yeah. yeah. I saw inside someone. Oh, no. You yeah. Didn't. No. Was it backlit? 
Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Lent and pancakes. But first, let's talk about Lent. It is predominantly observed by Catholics and the Orthodox, but on a slightly different calendar. But Christians of all denominations can and do often participate. Lent is a period of 40 days during which Christians spend commemorating the 40 days Jesus Christ allegedly spent fasting in the desert and enduring temptation by Satan. Now, leading up to a fast of any kind getting ready to go on vacation, whatever, you try to make sure you use up the stuff that you've got in your house. Sure. Well, eggs and milk wouldn't do well over Lent, so they had to be used up. So in late February in England, pancakes became a very popular and eventually traditional meal to eat just before Lent. I didn't know that was the reason. Did you know that that was a thing, though? Pancakes? Oh, yeah. Pancakes before Lent? Yeah, sure. Oh, okay, you're looking at me like, of course I do, dummy. Well, I grew up in an Episcopalian house, and that's kind of like Catholic light. (laughs) Well, according to lore, in the 15th century, an only woman was making pancakes when she heard the church bells ring. She wanted to make sure that she wasn't going to be late for service, so she ran to the church. But she was still wearing her apron and holding her frying pan with the pancake in it. Another legend says that it's possible pancakes may have been used as a gift, <clears throat> bribe, for the church bell ringer to clang alang a little bit earlier and get the day going. I like the first story best, of course. But either way, it ended up becoming a tradition. A tradition of racing. Of what? Racing. Racing? We're talking about the only pancake race. Oh, Okay. Tradition says the first race was run in the year 1445, and it continued throughout the centuries, though there have been lapses, of course, but the race was never entirely forgotten by the people of Olney. One such lapse was during the Second World War. It was revived again in 1948 by the vicar of Olney, the Reverend Canon Ronald Collins. 
They'd been clearing out a cupboard when he came across some old photographs, which were taken during like the 1920s and 30s, of women running with frying pans. Now, obviously, this person knew what was up, and they wanted to revive this tradition. So they would run with frying pans. Were they making pancakes while they ran? <laughs> We're going to get there. Oh, this is fascinating. So in response to the call for volunteers, 13 runners appeared on Shrove Tuesday. Shrove Tuesday, yeah. The day before Lent. And since then, the tradition has continued. The whole day became a festival of celebration. This historic race takes place every year in Olney with many running for charity. Even in the throes of a coronavirus lockdown, a solitary pan bearer dressed up and ran the 415 yard course in 2021 so the tradition wouldn't be broken. Oh, that's great. So the race only open to female residents of Olney who are 18 and over and are a resident of the town and have been for at least three months or who work in Olney and have worked in Olney for three months. As I said, the course is 415 yards or almost 380 meters. You have to wear a skirt and you are provided with an apron and a headscarf and a pancake pan. Last year, those three things, the headscarf, the apron, and the pancake pan were provided by sponsors, Francis Jackson Home and DuPont. Wow, they've got corporate sponsorship. Yeah, but you need to bring your own pancake. They'll give you the pan, but you got to bring your own pancake. Right. So at the beginning of the race, you toss the pancake to flip it. Okay. And then you have to be able to toss it at the end. So you don't have to keep tossing it as you run. Not in this race. So there are different levels of competitive circuits <laughs> for pancake <laughs> racing. If there's a competition, you know that other people have gotten involved. The race starts with the sounding of the church bell. Runners start from the pedestrian crossing by Olney Market and make their way to the church door of St. Peter and St. Paul's. There, drinks and your warm clothes will be waiting for you. Wait, their clothes are waiting for Do they have to run it? naked with just an apron no no a... it's cold though it's like february i see so or whenever lent okay. is all right so they they have running clothes that they wear but they they leave warm clothes to wear afterward at the church like their coats and stuff okay gotcha yeah. because i'm thinking why would you immediately go to they run naked well because women running naked flipping pancakes <laughs> i'm in it's all the things i love don't make this weird you get to keep your apron, headscarf, and pan, which is nice. The day's events also include a community breakfast. There's music and entertainment. There's a raffle and a kids race. Then the awards ceremony. Now, the awards ceremony has been a little bit different since the 1950s when liberal Kansas got in the mix. So liberal Kansas here in the States, after seeing press photographs of the race in Olney, reached out to race organizers. They wanted in. And so Olney readily accepted and they are now together in this in a spirit of international goodwill and friendship. The two towns compete annually and prizes are exchanged. Oh, that's wonderful. That's the type of pancake diplomacy we need these days. Right. So Olney, of course, does their race and Liberal Kansas does their race. They record the times and they also host a video call to present the prizes. Eloise Kramer triumphed in the Olney pancake race 
this year, completing the 415-yard course with a time of just 65 seconds. Wow. In Liberal, Kansas, their winner was Isabel Sullinger. They completed the race with a time of 73 seconds. Liberal runners have so far won 39 races, with Olney winning 32 races. You might say that math doesn't make sense. Well, two races were no contest, and in 1980, the score didn't count because a news van blocked the finish line. (laughs) That's unfortunate. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, as we discussed, other races have popped up around the globe. Uh, Some races only allow women to participate, but others allow men and women either racing together or in separate heats. There are relay events where the apron, pan, and pancake have to be passed on to fellow runners. And sometimes there are high-profile people like members of parliament who carry their skillets to raise money for charity. But the rules are pretty much the same. You finish the race first with a pancake to flip. That's, That's the goal. And it's an admirable one. But as you brought up, some races, like the the original, only insist on the flip at the beginning and the flip at the end. But others set flipping points throughout the race that you must stop at, flip your pancake, and then continue your race. Gotcha. Yeah. The next world-famous pancake race is on Trove Tuesday, the 13th of February, 2024. And I know you're going to think this is wild, but I think we should go. Okay, I'm in. Anything with pancakes. I got my information from BBC, OnlyPancakeRace.org, BuckinghamshireLive.com, and Metro.co.uk. Maybe if we go, we could attend St. Alfonso's Pancake Breakfast. We've got a Zoom call coming up in a couple of days. We do, and uh, it's for the members of the Order of Freaks on Patreon. If you would like to become a member of the Order of Freaks and help support the podcast, Lordy, we'd appreciate it. You can get all the details at theboxofoddities.com or go to Patreon, whichever one works best for you. Each time we Zoom, I try to have a theme, but it never works out. And we never end up talking about the thing that I intended for us to talk about. But it's it fun. Doesn't, doesn't matter. It's, <laughs> it's, it's always entertaining. And, uh, of course, as a member of the Order of Freaks, it le- depending upon what level you join, you get ad-free episodes, you get to access the Zoom calls, episodes a day early, and just insider stuff. A lot of pictures of haggis, really. Let's let's be clear. Who, by the way, might not have to have his eyeballs taken out. Yeah, we'll tell you more about that in the next episode. Thanks for hanging out with us. You guys, we'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. And fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. The Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories, stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash Box of Oddities Podcast On Twitter at Box of Oddities And Instagram at Box of Oddities Podcast Copyright 2023 All rights reserved you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. 
Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.